Welcome to ID the Future, a podcast about intelligent design and evolution. Today on the ID the Future podcast, we have the third and final portion of a conversation between Discovery Institute's Stephen Meyer and Oxford mathematician and philosopher John Lennox. They're continuing a conversation about Lennox's new documentary, Against the Tide, Finding God in an Age of Science, which is in theaters one night only on November 19th. Find out more about that at againstthetide.movie. Now, let's finish listening to the discussion. If you permit me, I had just an, I had a little encounter with Hoyle myself as a first-year graduate student. In, oh, really? He came to lecture on his ideas about panspermia. And after we were done, or after he was done, I came alongside him and we were walking to one of the, uh, the common rooms for a, a post-talk reception. And I started to ask him about his, uh, his view of the origin of life and the information-bearing properties of DNA. And I asked if he thought that that information in the DNA molecule might be providing evidence of a designing mind. And when I said that, he looked both ways and said, he, he kind of went, shh. And then he said, walk with me. And then he just began to jabber. And he was very intrigued with that idea. Of course, I was in the early stages of formulating my thoughts about intelligent design and what information sure. implied. So it was really interesting. He was in a very interesting figure. But that kind of brings us in your whole discussion of the word, the primacy of the word, both in the universe and in life, to the third big Cambridge discovery. Uh, this one happened a little before your time, but it was still, the, the afterglow of that was still, I'm sure, very important in the 60s with the molecular biological revolution. But oh, sure. 50s, before you, you came up to university, Watson and Crick, of course, elucidated the structure of the DNA molecule in 57. Crick puts forward the famed sequence hypothesis that, that argues that the, the DNA contains information in a digital form. And you, you in the film talk quite a lot about the importance of information to uh, uh, th this, this, this deep worldview question of materialism or theism, which makes more sense. And I wonder if you could talk more about that from the standpoint of the, the, the reality of information in a biological context. Well, to step back from that, you see, as a mathematician and some kind of a scientist, what you mentioned about the rational intelligibility of the universe is, is central. You cannot do science without believing that. And so science doesn't give you a rational justification, except for a pragmatic one. You've got to believe it before you start. Mm -hmm. The theistic uh, Judeo-Christian worldview gives you a rational basis for believing that as the pioneers of science uh, thought. Now, if you carry that a little bit further, we're saying that we can describe, at least in part, some of the phenomena in the universe by using a highly compressed language, mathematics. It's words, very carefully defined and precise words. Now, to back that up, now within the universe, not within its description, but within its very biological nature, we find to huge surprise when it was discovered, that the longest word of any kind 
is actually the human genome. In other words, here we have a chemical word and four chemical bases, and it's three and a half billion roughly letters long. And I came across this, of course, R.E.D. Clark pointed it out and its significance. And I used to go around and visit him in Cambridge and talk to him about this. And I have never had the slightest doubt that this is one of the most powerful evidences of a designing intelligence. And the more I've studied it, even though I'm not a biologist, uh, the more powerful the evidence for that grows. Because, of course, people have attempted now for a very long time, because it was also in the 1950s that they thought they'd discovered how life originated. If you remember the Miller-Urey experiment where they passed a simulated lightning discharge through a cocktail of what they thought were the chemicals in the primeval atmosphere. They produced a few amino acids and so on. But uh, that's 70 years ago. And Origin of Life Research, as you know better than I do, has not progressed a whit except to demonstrate that the difficulties are infinitely greater than Miller and Urey ever imagined. So I think this is a signature. It's quite, a, it's quite an irony, isn't it, John, that, that Watson and Crick make their discovery in April of, of 1953, the same year as the Miller-Urey experiment. So you have this great optimism about explaining the origin of life in the very year that the discoveries made that would, would ultimately produce an impasse in that field because no one's been able to explain the origin of the information that's, that's stored in the DNA molecule. That's right. And my summary of the whole thing, you've written a book with a superb title that I would encourage everybody to read called The Signature in the Cell, that I would expect from my reading of the biblical material that God has left a stamp on the universe. I mentioned earlier the dignity, the value that the fact that humans are made in the image of God give to humans. But Scripture goes further. It says that there's evidence of God's existence and his power in the things that are made. Yes. And we perceive them. And uh, the interesting thing is you quoted the blind watchmaker, that biology is a study of things that give the appearance of being designed. You just have to change that very slightly. They give that appearance. That is our perception because that is the truth. They have been designed. Absolutely. Uh, what do you make of, of um, the career of Francis Crick? Uh, he's, he makes this extraordinary discovery. It's, it's a discovery for the ages. And he goes further than Watson. Uh, they elucidate together the structure of the DNA molecule. But Crick is the first to realize that DNA is literally storing information in a digital form. This is his sequence hypothesis. He suggests yes. that the nucleotide bases are functioning like alphabetic characters or digital characters in the machine code. And yet, uh, he maintains a staunch atheism and materialism throughout his career. He's a code breaker in World War II. He breaks the ultimate code of life, and yet doesn't seem to be able to see the significance that you and I see in it. What, what, what do you make of that? It's very hard to second guess what thoughts go on. One of the things that I believe Crick said in early days was that he attacked the problem of the nature of DNA to prove there was no God. Uh, 
which is absolutely ironic because what he discovered is very powerful evidence that there is a designing intelligence. I just do not know. I did have an encounter with Watson, which was memorable because he gave a talk and we were walking down the stairs in my college and I quoted Crick to him. And I said, Professor Watson, Francis Crick once said that the origin of life was like a miracle. What do you think? He was quite angry and he said, it happened. And he turned away and that was the end <laughs> of the conversation. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's as if I'd, I'd hit a sore point. Why? It's strange in this world that when you raise the question of intelligent origin or God, people somehow get embarrassed. It's a bit like Thomas Nagel, although he's very different. He, he writes quite candidly. He doesn't want there to be a God. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, that's not a scientific position. So I don't know how to answer your question. But what I do know is that when Crick uh, tried to explain on atheistic foundations the nature of human consciousness. He really began to talk nonsense. He wrote a book called The Astonishing Hypothesis that you and your thoughts and uh, were simply um, a bundle of billions and billions of atoms and neurons and synapses. And that's how he started the book. And then in the middle of the book, he said, you are essentially <laughs> that. Well, of course, we know that we're composed of billions of atoms, but to say that we're only that, uh, well, if that were true, we'd never know it, as many people have pointed out, and not only theists, but many philosophers have pointed out that we'd never know it. So I think he loses the plot when it comes to philosophy. Now, this is an important thing, and I'm sure that you can say a lot more about it than I can. Einstein once said something that lives with me and is a warning to me. The, the scientist is a poor philosopher. And you can see that in the writings of people like Dawkins and Hawking. They haven't a clue uh, about philosophy. And, you know, I'm reminded that Lord Rees, who's our astronomer royal, was asked what he thought of Hawking's views on theology and philosophy. Well, he said, I know Stephen Hawking very well. Now, of course, he's a brilliant cosmologist, mathematician and physicist, no question. But he said he knows very little philosophy and no theology, and I wouldn't take seriously anything he said about that. Mm -hmm. And we come up against, Steve, what I see as power play and authority play. That is, if I am a distinguished scientist, then I can speak on any topic in the world with authority. That is not true. And I'm constantly aware of that because here I am talking to you. I'm a pure mathematician. I'm going outside my field. Now, that's risky business. It's risky for Dawkins. It's risky for me. So what do we do? And I find the first thing to do is check with the experts in the field. And that's where I have deep criticism of people like Richard Dawkins, who uh, will quote as evidence um, of historical matters a retired professor of German and no ancient historian. I mean, that is just absurd.
And, and so it's very important that we do our homework and be modest about our conclusions, but check with the experts in the fields that we're delving into. Well, and a point that you've made very cogently a number of times is that very often these debates that are alleged to be uh, scientists critiquing religionists or something are really, um, or uh, scientists who might critique uh, a scientist such as yourself who has faith, they, the, your opposite numbers will position themselves as making a scientific critique of you, but actually what's in play is our competing worldviews. That's right. And the important thing here, you say scientists like me who have faith, but we need to add, my faith is in God, mm -hmm. and they are people of faith. There, there's a huge myth around in the world, and this is what they build on, that you and I were people of faith, and faith is believing where there's no evidence, so we're not worth talking to. I want to shout from the housetops that every single person is a person of faith. They have a worldview they believe in. And so when I talk about faith, I try to, I don't always succeed, to say faith in God. I've also got faith in the scientific uh, method. and. Faith is something that operates in every area of life. It's the a really compelling is, point, John, that there's no, there's no worldview neutrality here. Everyone has a worldview. And yes. you see this in the writings of people like Hawking and Krauss and Dawkins. Um, they will disparage philosophy and at the same time make an argument for a very naive materialistic philosophy for which there's virtually no evidence. And it's even worse than that, Stephen. Yeah. Stephen Hawking's book, The Grand Design, starts on about page four by saying philosophy is dead, and the rest of the book is an attempt at philosophy of science. Well, yes. I and, mean, and that's, that, very that, poorly that is done. just absurd. Right. Yeah, but yeah, you're yeah. right. Terrific physicist, fantastic cosmologist, really bad philosopher of science and uh, yes. yeah and and yet he his public pronouncements are mainly in the mode of 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 philosophical statements in defense of a materialistic worldview and what i find fascinating and we maybe should come back to this is we've just been talking about these three big discoveries the universe had a beginning the universe has been finely tuned from the very beginning for the possibility of life and then there have been these big infusions of information into our biosphere, making new forms of life possible. Um, when I add those three things up, I think that they, they seem to have profoundly, they certainly point to a designing intelligence, but when you think about the fine tuning being present from the very beginning of the universe, it looks to me like the best explanation is, a fine, is an intelligence of a transcendent kind. When the, and, Absolutely. And so there's actually not only, not only has Christianity and Judaism, uh, the, the, the monotheistic, um, worldview brought presuppositions to science that have made science possible, but now we're finding powerful evidence within the natural world that's pointing to God, to the reality of God, and so that's, I think it's on those terms that I'd like to have this debate with our, our new atheist interlocutors going forward, because they've assumed that there can't be any evidence, and then they, they proceed to uh, well, that's a, that's a very cheap anti-intellectual cop-out. And you made a point a few moments ago that's worth picking up on. The central issue is not science versus God. The central issue is the collision of two diametrically opposed worldviews, atheism and theism. 
And there are scientists on both sides of that. Right. And so the real question to be asked is, where does science point, if anywhere? Does it point, as Dawkins claims, towards atheism, or does it point towards uh, a transcendent intelligence, as I would strongly claim? And there is where the debate is. And people who think it's science versus God, I say to them, look, this cannot be so for a very obvious reason. And the obvious reason is that if you go to the top level of science, let's stick with physics and the Nobel Prize, you've got Peter Higgs, who won the Nobel Prize a few years ago, who's an atheist, one of the more pleasant atheists, actually. And then you, you've got uh, the American physicist, whose name escapes me just at the moment, he's still alive, uh, the low-temperature physicist uh, who won the Nobel Prize, who's a Christian. Now, the fact that you've got those two people, their science doesn't differentiate between them. They both won the biggest prize that you can win. What The difference between them consists in their worldview. And unless we can see, and I think it's so important to get across the public that this is a worldview discussion and we're bringing in evidence on which worldview you should believe. And so is the it, nonsense... Is it about which worldview provides a better overall interpretation? Yes, of explanatory power. Right. The better, yes, exactly. Explan it's an issue of explanatory power. And there I think theism really has a decisive advantage. That's the the case I'm making in a new book, and it's the, it's uh, beautifully made in, in the film. This comes out... Well, I'm you, glad you, to hear that. <laughs> well, you do it so conversationally, it kind of goes down like butter, but I think uh, it, it, it allows... You, you've opened up a window to this great, big, and important question in the film, is God real or imaginary? As our friend uh, Professor Philip Johnson used to say, it was the most important question. Is God real or imaginary? Yes. But then you talk about the different evidences that allow you to adjudicate that question, to assess it, and uh, and engage in that worldview debate, but not a worldview debate that's uh, conducted purely in the realm of abstract philosophy, but rather the philosophy intersecting with the evidence, which which what makes the film so correct. Yes, absolutely. John, um, just to, for the audience, how did you uh, get involved in a film project like this? This isn't your usual. Um, well, it it actually genre. the idea the idea came from a physicist. Uh, Steve Huff of the Pensmore Foundation, and he had read one of my books and uh, looked me up in Oxford. I got this phone call. I didn't know who he was, and we sat down, and I found that he would had been very interested in seeking for ways to explain to the public the deficiencies and inadequacies in naturalism. And we became friends, and he ran several conferences, and you took part in some of them, for example, in Westminster Theological Seminary. But I think what partly crystallized it was, there was a film made with Kevin Sorbo in the role of an atheist professor called God's Not Dead. And I saw this film, and to my utter amazement, it explicitly used some of my arguments. They, they were quoting you. In the they film. were quoting me yeah. in some detail. So Sorbo was faced by his student called Wheaton, interestingly, <laughs> with arguments that came from me. And of course, I was absolutely astounded because I'd not heard of this before. And 
that led to the idea uh, slowly, it took quite a while of making some kind of a film and eventually about my life and eventually the notion of involving Kevin Sorbo. So we met together and we got on very well and, and the rest is, is history. So, so they so, made a film where they allowed you to make your own arguments for yourself then. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. The idea was to try and get the thing out in an interesting way that's got a bit of... Uh, human interest as well, and so that that is what has happened. And of course, uh, we didn't restrict it to the science god discussion because there comes a point, a turning point in the film, where Kevin said to me, "Look, you know, all this stuff is is good, and uh, but you actually are Christian. How do you justify the step from theism to Christianity? Which is a very important question. So I turn around and say to him, look, the best way to deal with that is to go to where it all started. And so the rest of the book takes place in Israel, where we're dealing with the much more history and experience specific claims that Christianity makes. So it's an interesting kind of blend. I don't know whether it's been attempted before. Uh, people tell it's me it has It's a completely new genre, as, as, as best I can tell. It's a part travelogue, part intellectual autobiography, part uh, science documentary. It, it, it fuses all these three things beautifully. And, um, and you guys are much to be commended. It's really good. I'm going to just give a little plug for our audience uh, with some information about how to how to uh, uh, get more information about the film. There's a, a wonderful website, againstthetide.movie, not .com, but .movie. And you can also follow our coverage of the film as it gets closer to release on evolutionnews.org. John, uh, I think you, you, uh, you, you've just had a fascinating career and... Your voice is so important in this larger dialogue within our culture about what science can tell us about uh, the reality of God. And we're just very proud to, to be able to give your, your film a bit of a plug and the film succeeds beautifully in what you all set out to do. So thanks for joining us today in the, in, for this interview and we'll be sharing it with our audience and uh, we hope we can get a lot of people to, to go to the theater. When does it release? Is it? Uh, I believe on November the 19th, but it's a one-night cinema release. I don't think it's it's there for any longer than that. You'd have to check on the website. Right. But we'll November the 19th is the debate, and we're trying to encourage people to go and see it and, and all this kind of thing. But thank you very much for inviting me on. As usual, it's been with you a fascinating conversation. And... I could see we could keep going for we hours. We have a lot more to discuss. I was thinking I'm sure making... there will be another time. But yes. in the meantime, thank you very much for using your wonderful platform to, to support this. Well, thanks for all you're doing, John. And we'll, we'll look forward to this release. So, and again, okay. congratulations. Well, goodbye. Goodbye. Nice to talk today. That was the third and final part of a conversation between philosopher of science Stephen Meyer and British mathematician John Lennox. To learn more about the Against the Tide movie premiere November 19th, go online to againstthetide.movie. That's againstthetide.movie. 
This program was recorded by Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute. For more information, visit intelligentdesign.org and idthefuture.com.